You're listening to Breaking the Silence, a podcast by Reach 10, where we're creating a culture of courage, compassion, and connection to overcome the shame, silence, and fear that often surrounds topics such as sexuality and pornography. We're your hosts, Chriselle Simons and Creed Orm. Welcome again, listeners, to the Breaking the Silence podcast. We will be having Stephen Croshaw with us today. We are very grateful that he can join us tonight. He is the co-founder and president of SA Lifeline Foundation, a nonprofit foundation dedicated to providing hope, education, and resources related to sexual addiction and betrayal trauma recovery. We recently had his wife with us as well, Real Croshaw. They work together in this SA Lifeline Foundation that has been instrumental and beautiful for the recovery of so many people, both the people that have the trauma in a pornography-involved relationship or the person that's struggling with pornography. So he's so valuable to have with us tonight. And we will be answering the question, what makes a good sponsor, sponsee relationship in a 12-step program? And so, Stephen, without further ado, if you can introduce yourself a little bit more to us and share with us a little bit of your story and, and how you can help us answer this question. I appreciate the opportunity to be invited to participate in the podcast tonight. So thank you, Creed, for that introduction Briefly, I need to tell you just a bit about myself as it applies to the subject that we're talking about. Obviously, if I'm giving some information and talking about my own experience with sponsorship, I must have some experience working the 12 steps. And the reason that I work 12 step is because I deal with sexual addiction. And that has been with me for a good share of my life. And I am now a grown man with many children and grandchildren, and still gratefully married. My story uh, starts off early as a child, in fact, age six. Many years ago, I discovered a pornographic magazine in a chest of drawers of my brother, who was nine years older than me. So he was about 15, and he had hidden a pornographic magazine, which I found and I looked at. I was intrigued. In fact, that experience I have a clear recollection of. And I experienced with that some of the euphoria that comes with that first exposure to pornography. In my innocence, I gave the magazine to my mother because I knew that it was wrong, but I knew little about what I had experienced. Sadly, she didn't say anything to me about it, or I think if she had, I would have remembered it. She took the magazine. I know that because I didn't have it anymore. And that's the last that I recall of that experience the first time, but I was so intrigued by it that I went back to pornography, looking to find it in the same places I had found that magazine or in my brother's stuff. And on occasion, I would find one. So anyway, my first experience then led to an increasing use of pornography whenever I could find it as a a child or even as a young teenager. I was introduced to sex with self or masturbation. The idea was suggested to me by a friend. And so 
at about age 10 or 11, I started masturbating, combining masturbation and pornography together. I believe by age 14, I was really hooked. In fact, as I really think about my experience early on, I tried to stop many times as a young teenager, but was unsuccessful at doing so, but tried. But in those efforts of trying, I didn't talk to anybody about it. I kept my behavior hidden, didn't talk to even friends about it. So I was silent and began living what is much of a double life. Sadly, the challenge with sexual addiction is it doesn't just want more, it wants different. I went into my marriage really unworthy. I had acted out with some girls in high school, didn't tell anything about my experiences to my fiance, who is now my wife. So she came into the relationship not knowing anything about my pornography use, not knowing anything about relationships that I'd have with girls in high school. She thought that I was just a um, totally worthy young man, and I wanted to be that totally worthy young man. In fact, I had gone and confessed my behaviors to ecclesiastical leaders and thought that I was good to go, not realizing that I was dealing with an addiction. Well, with that addiction, a short time after we were married, I went back to looking at pornography and masturbating. And that escalated after a period of years to going to adult establishments. I traveled as a traveling man. I had time alone and I discovered adult establishments. I would go frequent those when I was away, didn't talk to anybody about it and began really in earnest living a double life. And that went on for many years. In fact, about 16 years of our marriage until I came forward for the first time. So when the first time when I came forward, I had progressed from pornography, masturbation, adult establishments, and eventually in my mid-30s to acting out with prostitutes. And then sadly, out of fear of being caught, I came forward at about age 37 for the first time, told my wife everything, and she uh, had no knowledge of it up to that point. And as we look back on that experience, she was experiencing trauma. We didn't understand it, nor did anyone else that we were going to, that we went to for help. They didn't understand trauma and certainly didn't understand addiction. So we received no help. I essentially stopped the behavior for three years. We worked to try to rebuild trust and, and keep the marriage together with really no understanding of what we were dealing with. After three years, I went back to the behavior. So the story, it repeats itself. After three years, I went back to the behavior, progressed all the way back to acting out with prostitutes. So 10 years after first disclosing to my wife, I disclosed to her again that I was back to the behavior. So this time, real really in her trauma, was deeply hurt, but wanted to try and help me. So her efforts to help me included finding a therapist and reading books and giving me encouragement to be a stand-up guy. She worked to be forgiving. She was definitely in trauma, not realizing where she was because that trauma led her to essentially really try and control the situation and do the work for me out of love, but not understanding that she couldn't do the work for me. That's an interesting part of her story. And uh, when she finally learned that she couldn't do it for me. Well, the story was deja vu all over again. This was about now I'm at about age 47. I come forward for the second time. Same thing over again. So she's trying to help me. Seven years later, after returning to the behavior, after about three years of going out totally, I think I was white knuckle sober for three years. 
I went back to the behavior. And then sadly, but a miracle happened in my life. And I shouldn't say it was really sad. It was, it was traumatic and traumatizing at the time. And I thought my life had ended. But on August 25th of 2005, I was arrested for picking up a prostitute. So now I'm a three-time loser have, having been caught. So at this point, I knew that my life would change dramatically. I thought my marriage would end. I thought I could lose my job. I thought I would lose my membership in my church. And so I really felt like that all would end for me. As it turns out, that was a great blessing. I came forward and admitted what had happened about 17 days later. And in that process, Rill and I separated. I think she mentioned that in her podcast. And I began in earnest working to understand what I was dealing with, dealing with sexual addiction, and with an honest heart and a true willingness, began the work of recovery. I found a qualified therapist. I found a great 12-step group. I began reading and studying and understanding what sexual addiction is and what I was dealing with. So during this period of time of separation, I really began the work of recovery. So that's a part of my story. That's the most important part of my story is that I had an opportunity at that point to make a decision whether I would really commit myself to the work of recovery. And Real wasn't going to commit herself to the work of my recovery, but she essentially stood back to see if I was willing to commit myself to my own work of recovery. And that's where my story began when I began to understand the value of working the 12 steps. And so that would bring me to the point of the question about sponsorship. Awesome. Yes. And I would have to say that you'd be so qualified to answer this question and, and so many others, given your own personal experience and working on this recovery and starting the SA Lifeline Foundation. Before we jump into the other question, I just want to ask, why do you want to start that foundation? The foundation started about three years after this experience of being arrested. The reason we started it was we knew that other people were experiencing the trauma that my wife had experienced and the trauma of sexual addiction that I experienced and that recovery is possible, but that the pathway of understanding recovery is not easily found. So our goal in starting the foundation was literally to deliver a message of hope that there is hope for recovery from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. And so our effort initially was simply to provide education, help people find resources for recovery. And at some point later, we determined that we would tell our story publicly. And so that people can hear that story, both mine and my wife's, and from our own experience, we could then share, yes, things can look really bleak, but recovery is possible. There's a lot of hope to save relationships, even in the most difficult circumstances. So the foundation started with that purpose in mind, giving hope and also giving people understanding of resources where recovery can take place from sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. I'm so grateful that you started this incredible resource. I, myself, when I was in the middle of betrayal trauma from a relationship and from my parents' experience, I went to a therapist who didn't understand betrayal trauma and was just like, 
no, I'm not struggling with anxiety and depression. This is way more than that. And I felt so hopeless uh, that I could get help personally. And it wasn't until I found a therapist who specialized in this exact thing that you're talking about that I was able to have hope and like the tools that I needed to recover. So thank you for starting an incredible, incredible program that is touching so many lives and providing the tools and the resources for people to get the help they need. Thank you for sharing your experience. And boy, the sad thing is, is your experience is common where women who experience trauma go and look for help in various places and are essentially told, well, you know, if you'll just do this and this and this, you're going to be okay. Not recognizing that the symptoms of trauma are just like PTSD. In fact, post-traumatic syndrome is something that women experience through betrayal and it's extremely serious. It's cellular and women who experience it need to be able to understand what it is and then work their own recovery. So often women are told, well, just go support that man in your life. (laughs) Not realizing that that information is just sadly re-traumatizing them. Yeah, really though. And so to answer specifically this question that, that we have for you today, in your experience with recovery, I'm sure you had many experiences with working with a sponsor and you being the sponsee. Can you describe to us what a sponsor is for someone in recovery and then simply what makes it a good relationship in a 12-step program? Sure. Well, let me share what a sponsor is from my own experience. Let me tell you about my first 12-step meeting. It was an SA group, Sexologics Anonymous group. So this is 15 and a half years ago. I went to my first meeting with an honest heart and a sincere willingness to be there. And the meeting was 50 miles away. So I go to this meeting fearing that I don't know what's going to happen there. And I might see someone that knows me there. So I'm feeling shame. So I go to this meeting and one of the men that I meet there is about my age. He has a story I discover very similar to mine. And the most incredible thing was he was there with a smile on his face and he had six years of sobriety. And I thought, oh my word, how is that possible? I want to get to know this man. So I reached out to him immediately. His name was Greg, Greg P. And asked him if he would be my sponsor. And I didn't really even know what that meant. But I knew that I needed a sponsor, but I didn't know for sure how that relationship would work. But I knew that I wanted to know more about him and about his story of recovery because I believed it would help me. So his story and the story you've just heard of mine was so similar that I thought, surely he's going to be able to help me to some degree. And I want to find out what that is. So let me back up and go clear back to about 1935 or 34, when Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, discovered that an alcoholic who was in recovery was best prepared to help another alcoholic. And he discovered that on his own when he actually had a spiritual experience and became sober because of that experience, but he was still incredibly tempted. And on a business trip, he was tempted to the point that he nearly faltered and discovered, he said, I've got to find another alcoholic just to talk to And on his own, he found another alcoholic who was Dr. Bob, 
the, the other fellow that helped start Alcoholics Anonymous. And it was that relationship of between Bill W. and Dr. Bob that helped both of them stay sober. So they discovered that an alcoholic in recovery is best prepared to help another alcoholic learn how to be in recovery. Well, I lived that in my own experience. So what happens in a sponsor-sponsee relationship is the sponsor is there to give hope, to provide accountability and help a person work the steps by sharing their own experience of having worked the step. So in the case of Greg P and myself, I became very familiar with, with Greg's story. He shared it with me in some detail. As I shared with him my story, he would give me experiences that helped him on his journey of recovery. And one of those was my very first few weeks, he suggested that I get involved in doing what's called a first step inventory, where I go back and I look at my, my life experiences of acting out sexually, and I begin to learn and see what the unmanageability of my addiction really looks like. And I need to get outside of myself. I need to get outside of isolation. So who am I going to tell that story to that will be understanding that I'm not going to feel shame around that's going to help give me feedback based upon their own experience. The great place where that can happen is actually with another sexual addict who is sober, who's gone that pathway before. So I shared my story with him and I, he shared his story with me. And that started that relationship was I worked the steps he shared his experience of working the steps with me as I went through that process. And so the sponsor helps provide experience, strength, hope, encouragement, and most of all, accountability. So right now, I continue to work the steps. As a sponsor, I continue to work the steps and help other people, but I also have a sponsor. And that sponsor helps do the same thing for me, helps me be accountable helps give me a sounding board for situations, especially when I need to surrender. That's another point we need to talk about. A sponsor is there to help us understand and help us work through the surrender process, which we, we really need to talk about. So the idea that I, I was first working with a sponsor, as alcoholics discovered, one of the most important ways to stay sober is to help others on their pathway of recovery. And so Early on, a person finds a sponsor, they work with a sponsor, and as they begin to have success in working their recovery and can live what we call positive sobriety or live in recovery, then they need to be sponsoring other people. And that sponsoring other people now completes the circle. I'm being helped by someone and I'm helping someone else. And that becomes literally perpetual motion. And so for people living recovery, they need to be helping someone else serving as a sponsor, and they also need to have their own sponsor. So that's almost perpetual motion. I think this is such a cool, uh, cool is the wrong word. Inspired is probably a better word. Inspired process where you really are able to form a relationship with someone who is walking the same path that you're walking. I think that's so important. I, I want to know more about this idea of surrender and how our sponsors and sponsees help us surrender. Sure. Interestingly, a lot of people want to talk about what recovery looks like. A lot of people will think that recovery is essentially sobriety. Recovery is a lot more than sobriety. Recovery is living in positive sobriety. 
And so what does it mean to live in positive sobriety? We live in positive sobriety by applying steps one through 12. First three steps are essentially recognizing unmanageability, that there is a power greater than ourselves, that there is a God, that we need to learn how to surrender our will and those unmanageable situations to another human being. And so the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So if that's the case, where do we connect? Well, ultimately, we want to be connected with God. That connection is served by other people living recovery. And so God is calling on all of us who are living in recovery to serve one another and to help that connection take place. So if I am experiencing a triggering moment or a moment where I'm feeling resentment or anger or fear, what am I going to do with that emotion? In the past, when I was living my addiction, I would seek out pornography or I would seek to escape even to prostitutes for a counterfeit fix with my drug. That obviously led to destroying myself and my relationships with others, my relationship with my wife and my family. So that counterfeit that I was seeking to find the emotional stability was essentially killing me and it was killing my connections. So what the opposite is then, I am looking now to be able to connect with someone else when I am feeling this emotional distress. And that emotional distress could be anything. In fact, the alcoholics say that resentment kills more alcoholics than anything. And so the fear and anger and resentment that come along with every life challenge needs to be surrendered. It needs to be given over to God. So surrendering that negative emotion can be done literally with another human being that could be my sponsor or another person in recovery. So Real has this, this great surrender process that she calls it on my knees, on the phone, in the box. And so that surrender process includes a prayer to the God of our understanding on the phone is calling another human being that we trust that can, we can talk about what's going on inside of us. And so that we can get that emotion out, not harbor it on the inside in the box means that I'm going to literally write down what these negative emotions I have are, and I'll put it in a box. It might only be three words, but I'm going to acknowledge to myself, to another human being and to God, that I'm in distress and I need help. Where's the help ultimately going to come from for that power? My sponsor doesn't have power to heal. He has power to give experience, strength, and hope, but not heal. The power comes from God, but God will recognize my desire if I'm willing to move my feet. If I keep it inside myself, it's just a wish. Am I really wishing that God will step in and help me and not get outside myself, that wish will not, it just won't bear fruit. So if I just get on my knees and pray, God, please take this away from me. Is that going to be the ultimate answer? That's a beginning part, but it's not getting it out into the power of the universe by speaking the words and speaking it to someone else in recovery. So this idea of surrender is real said in her comments, it's not putting the white flag up and saying, oh, I just give in. It's more that I give over to the power of the God of my understanding, and this is how I will do it. So it's what's called surrender, not giving in, but giving over to the power or the God of our understanding. 
Now, let me say a little bit about this idea of surrender a little bit further, because literally, I will surrender to God or to the dark side. I will surrender my will one way or the other. It's either going to go to, to God or it's going to go to the dark side. And so if I choose to surrender to the dark side, I'm giving over to that lustful feeling of wanting to act out with pornography. I surrender to the dark side and I give myself over to that lustful power, which is dark. However, if I want to surrender to the light, surrender to God, I have to face that direction and I have to deny myself the lust of my eyes. We could talk about lust. That's a whole different discussion. But sexual addiction, pornography addiction is lust-based. That is the common denominator, no matter what the acting out behavior is. And that's what drives the addiction. Mm. So we've talked a little bit about how the sponsor-sponsee relationship works, how the sponsor supports. What are some examples of an unhealthy or, or a relationship like that that's not helpful or working? Wow, that's a great question. It's a perfect question because that happens all the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. So where are you going to find a sponsor? People ask me, oh, man, I've got to have a sponsor. Where am I going to get a sponsor? The answer is go to meetings. So we have great meetings. I'll just put in the, the meetings that SA Lifeline supports are SAL 12-step meetings. You can go to online meetings or you can go to in-person meetings. You can go to our website, sal12step.org, and you can find a meeting. So you go to a meeting, you find someone there that can be a sponsor. Now, what do I do? A sponsor, a, a poor relationship with a sponsor is asking someone to be your sponsor and then never working the steps. Or asking someone to be your sponsor and going to meetings and never never really being able to share your own experience of working the steps. And so the relationship of a sponsor-sponsee is a sponsee is responsible for their own recovery, but they are not necessarily the ones to direct it. So a good sponsor is going to hold his sponsee accountable. I'm sponsoring a young man right now. He is much, much younger than I. In fact, he's 22 years old student. I met him at a meeting just a few weeks ago he was like, oh man, a deer in headlights. I sat next to him. I knew he was having a tough time just trying to figure out why in the world am I here? So I sat by him. And after the meeting, I said, I would like to be your temporary sponsor. Would you be willing to be my sponsee on a temporary basis? And he looked at me and thought, man, you're my grandpa. And I thought, well, that's, that's a good thing. So anyway, he said, yes, I would. I asked him if he would call me every day and I, and I would give him a reading assignment of just three pages, sometimes even less than that. So he's going to read three pages. He's going to underline. He's going to write down something that means something to him. And then he's going to call me. He's going to tell me what he did. And I'm going to share with him my hope for a recovery and that level of accountability. He's called me every single day and he's working the steps Last night when he called me, he said, you know what, I have, I have this feeling inside like I want to act out, but I knew that I was going to call you, and I certainly wasn't going to do it then. And I said, well, what a brave guy with tons of courage to call me and tell me how you were really feeling. I said, you just need to focus on the rest of the day. 
You don't have to even worry about tomorrow. Focus on the rest of the day, being sober, remembering the things that we've talked about. And tomorrow, we'll just do it all over again. So anyway, the relationship between a sponsor and a sponsee only works if the person, the sponsee is willing to work the steps. He's willing to not just read the steps, but write. And he's willing to make a call and talk about it. And then he's willing to go to a meeting and talk about his work of recovery, what he learned that week. That's working the steps, making the calls, reading, writing, going to meetings, and then also learning how to surrender. The opposite is going to a meeting, finding a sponsor, not working the steps, thinking that you're working a program if you're just going to a meeting. That does not work. In a nutshell, it sounds like to me that this relationship only works if people do their work <laughs> is essentially, I think, what it's, what we're saying here. If the sponsor is reliable to support the sponsee, recognizing that it's entirely up to the sponsee to do their work, and then if the sponsee does their work, it can be successful. So those were all fabulous tips for us about that relationship. Let me tell you one more thing. I want to give you one more tip that is so fabulous and it's offered by SA Lifeline and SAL12step.org. We provide a curriculum that takes about 280 sessions to complete. And it's a very finely organized layout of how to work the steps on a daily basis, what to read, questions are asked. And so there's an opportunity for writing. You get an email that shares with you what you wrote you can share that with your sponsor and then you can literally make a journal of all of this work that's being done on a daily basis. So you're reading, you're studying, writing, calling, keeping a journal of what you have read. And so guys that I sponsor, I put my arm around them and say, guys, let's, let's do this the right way. And let's plan on working this every day and let's do it with the curriculum. And then I'll know how you're doing if you are willing to communicate your work with me. So anyway, that's an awesome thing that we offer. That's fabulous. Thank you so much, Stephen, for being with us today and describing this relationship between the sponsor and sponsee and how a successful one works. We really appreciate all that you shared with us tonight, as well as everything that you do for the SA Lifeline Foundation. Please, listeners, go ahead and look up on their website for a meeting if you're needed to attend one and get a sponsor if you're working to recover from pornography. So once again, Stephen, this website that they can go to is? The websites, there are, are actually two of them, salifeline.org or, and you can go to sal12step, the number 12, 12step.org. So it's sal the number 12, the word step.org. And there you find all the meetings. And so let me just recap one little thing. And this is what we say when we end a meeting. Keep coming back. It works when you work it. So work it, you're worth it. That little saying essentially says it all. There's a lot of work to do in recovery. And each one of us who are working recovery experience the joys of connection. That's what it's all about. Appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Breaking the Silence by Reach 10. 
Help us create a new culture of connection by sharing what you heard today with at least 10 people. Please help us reach more young adults by going to iTunes to rate and review our podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Reach 10 is a nonprofit. You can help support this podcast by donating on our website and following us on social media. We share these views to open the dialogue on these tough issues. We are not professionals, and the ideas shared on this podcast should not be taken as professional advice. The opinions and views that our hosts and guests share do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach 10, and we don't guarantee the accuracy of any statements you hear. Reach 10 is not responsible for your use of information heard on this podcast. We keep learning and invite you to join us as we build a more open, compassionate, and courageous culture.